So brothers and sisters, what is success? How do you define success? I would say that in our day and culture, success is often defined uh, by way of three marks or aspects. Uh, The first, I think, is obvious. Uh, A person is not considered successful until they have money. And the more money, the greater the success. However, there are lots of people with lots of money who are not considered successful simply because we don't know them. So that another mark of uh, or aspect of success is popularity. A successful person has to get out and do things to be known by others and thus to be labeled as successful. And yet, just because a person has money and is uh, popular um, doesn't mean that that person is called successful until, and this is the, the third mark or aspect, and until they have prestige. After all, a, a rich person may be popular, and that person may also be rich and infamous, having money and being well-known, but popular in the negative, so that very few would, would call that person successful. The book of Proverbs call, uh, talks about such things when it says in Proverbs 3, verse 3, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Proverbs 15, verse 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 19, verse 1 says, Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. So by the prompting of Proverbs, we really need to rephrase the question to ask not just what is success, but how does God define success? And we can find the answer by looking to our Lord and considering the success of his earthly ministry in the flesh. Looking tonight at Mark 3, 7 through 30, the first point is the success of Jesus. Consider with me what Mark tells us. Verse 7 records, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And why was this? Well, because of what we heard last time in verse 6, we could have uh, dropped back and started reading a little bit earlier. But verse 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So things were getting dicey for the ministry of of Jesus, to use a a modern word that refers to a a state of trouble or at least uh, potential trouble. But then, that's not really the right word, is it? Because I'm pretty sure that dicey refers to an actual dice, uh, a cube uh, with six sides. And when you roll it, you don't know which number is going to turn up. And and that wasn't the case with Jesus. Here's an example of uh, how we always see Jesus in full control of what was going on around him and what was happening to him. 
After all, are, are we to think that Jesus had, uh, had power and authority over demons, demons that had power and authority over humans, but that he didn't have power over mere humans? So when it says that Jesus withdrew, we, we are not hearing that Jesus retreated. Instead, he withdrew. And he did so exactly because he was in control and it wasn't time yet for Jesus to deal with the attack of the Pharisees and the other leaders of the people. We see this all the way through the Gospels, but perhaps never more clearly than when it came time for Jesus to suffer and die. If we fast forward to Mark 14, we hear this recorded, that it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. Does that sound familiar? Mark 3, 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. But then in Mark 14, now in verse 2, it says, For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. In other words, they were still out to kill Jesus. They had been trying for some three years now over the full course of Jesus' ministry. But here now they had reached the decision to stand down, as we say. They were putting their plans on hold, thinking it not the best time, lest there be an uproar among the people. Better to find Jesus in a, in a dark alley, uh, so to speak, with, with not so many people around to object and start a riot. And yet, and and this is no coincidence, and yet it was exactly at that time when they had quit trying that they succeeded. Because they succeeded only when Jesus gave himself into their hands and into their plan to put him to death. This should be a great comfort to us. First of all, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have a Savior who is also our Lord and who is just as much in charge of our lives as he was his own on his way to the cross. And so we can trust him. We can trust him. We we can trust him not only because he has promised never to leave us nor forsake us, but because we can see from his own life and ministry that he is able to do what he promises. Anyone can make promises. And when you and I make promises, we are sinners and we often fail to keep them. But not our Lord Jesus. He makes promises And he keeps them every time. He keeps them because he is both willing and able to direct our lives and to care for us every day. Second, this should be a great comfort to us because we see by it that Jesus truly gave his life for us. Jesus himself said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. That's in John 10, verse 18. So when the Pharisees determined to destroy him, he withdrew. 
In another place, at another time, when they were about ready to throw him off a cliff, he simply passed through their midst and, and went his way. And when they decided to put their murderous plans on hold, it was then that he gave himself into their hands. And even on the cross, we are told that he willingly gave up his spirit and died. There are those who speak blasphemy against Jesus, saying, well, he didn't know who he was. He, he had to figure out who he was and, and why he had come. But that's nonsense. Because the gospel record proclaims to us a Jesus who had full and sovereign charge of his own life. He came to do his Father's will. And his Father's will was for him to go to the cross for sinners. And that's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. For our salvation. And so Jesus withdrew because it wasn't time yet. The time would come, but it hadn't come yet for him to go to the cross. And, and yet even as he withdrew, we hear that a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So it certainly was not the case that Jesus withdrew from his ministry. And isn't this what we would expect, that, uh, that as word got around that there was a man named Jesus, he could heal the sick, he could cast out demons, he was a man who, who had healed and delivered many people already. It makes sense that the people would come to him from all over the region. So many came that he had a boat prepared for him to climb into, lest they crush him, uh, writes Mark. And verse 10 records, For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Again, brothers and sisters, this is our Lord that we are seeing and hearing in the gospel record. He has all power and authority, and He is for us. I think we tend either to think too little of Jesus' miracles, or we think too much of them. Let me explain. We may think too little of Jesus' miracles if we don't stop and think about what Mark is telling us here, that Jesus did not just heal one there and, and another there and, and a few more in some other place. When we listen well to, to Mark and, and the other gospel writers, it becomes clear that thousands, perhaps even tens of thousands of people were healed or had demons cast out of them. But we may think too much of the miracles of Jesus if we miss the full reason why he came. So here is the full success of Jesus, that he had come not simply to do miracles. Granted, the, the words simply and miracles don't seem to go together. His miracles were astounding. And the sheer number of his miracles only made it all the more astounding. And yet his miracles were not even the half of it, not even the quarter of it, not even a drop in the bucket compared to what he had come to do. 
And we can see Jesus again on his way to the cross by way of verse 12. He, he strictly charged, he strictly ordered them not to make him known, referring to the demons. The demons were obeying him. The demons were coming out of those that they uh, had possessed. Even more, the demons were worshiping him, testifying that he is God. What do they say? There is no such thing as bad publicity. Or the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. So why did Jesus strictly order the demons not to make him known? To start with, he didn't need their testimony. Jesus had made it clear, clearly known to the people who he was. By his preaching, by his teaching, by his miracles. But furthermore, Jesus was not looking for more and more followers who were only following him for what he could give them then and there. In other words, he was heading to the cross to provide an eternal healing for sinners throughout the world. And that brings us to the second point, stemming from the the next passage in in Mark 3, because the next thing we see Jesus doing is appointing the twelve. And this, too, gives us the long view, we might call it. It shows us the success that Jesus was after by the fullness of his ministry, and it even shows us the result, the outcome of his cross and resurrection, because these twelve disciples, filled with the Spirit of Christ, would carry on the ministry of Christ, preaching the gospel and applying the the work of Christ in the cross and resurrection to the world. Mark even tells us that as Jesus chose the twelve disciples, he also named them apostles. But let's pick up verse 13. Mark records, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And, and then verse 14, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Mark doesn't tell us how, on this occasion, Jesus withdrew again and separated himself from the great crowd that had come to him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But there is so much that Mark does tell us here. That Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. For some of them, it may have been their first verbal calling from Jesus. We know that uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John and Matthew, remember, uh, that they had each heard and answered the call of Christ to follow him. Had the other disciples been called in the same way? We don't know. We aren't told. But here again, we we see the power and the authority of Jesus in his call. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Remember, let there be light, and there was light. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Even more, it says he appointed twelve, and that he named them apostles. The word apostle means one who is sent. And indeed, Jesus did send them even into all the world, even to make disciples of all nations. So were they disciples or were they apostles? They were both. But as disciples, they were apostles in training. This is what 
we are hearing when Mark says that Jesus chose them so that they might be with him. And even as apostles, yet they continue to be his disciples. Let me stop and ask, uh, have you ever memorized the 12 disciples? There are uh, a number of lists in the in God's Word that are worth memorizing. Uh, there are the six days of creation, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Ten Commandments, the nine virtues within the fruit of the Spirit, uh, the seven pieces of the full armor of God. Also, of course, the books of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments. If you haven't memorized the Ten Commandments, uh, you might start there. But I think it can be helpful to be able to name the 12 disciples because it will serve to make each of us more conscious of being a disciple of Christ. We believe that still today, Jesus calls his church to go and make disciples. And it's, uh, it's been said here before, well, not here, but within uh, within. This church's ministry. It's been it's been said before that, but the the word used to refer to a believer in Christ in the early church in the book of Acts is the word disciple, and not even the word Christian. And this should help us to see that the discipleship relationship continues in our day. It's the relationship that Jesus would call us to take up with Him in the present day. And we can learn how to follow Jesus, certainly from every part of God's Word, but in in a rather special way through the Gospels as we join company with those of our brothers whose names we know as the Twelve. So for a start at memorizing the twelve disciples, let me just read again verse 16 and following. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's not Mark's order, but, but I find it helpful to name first the, the two sets of brothers, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John, uh, along with Matthew. Then you can remember that there are two Simons, Simon called Peter and Simon the Zealot. Uh, there is also another James, James the son of Alphaeus, but otherwise Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Thaddeus, and Judas, although Thaddeus is in other places called Judas the son of James, or in one place he's called Judas not Iscariot. <laughs> so you also might want to talk to Mary after the service because uh, she has a very nice little song that can be used to memorize uh, the names of the uh, of the disciples. But back to the main point, by way of uh, this now, the third point, the full ministry of Jesus. These are the twelve chosen by Jesus, appointed and named to be apostles, and by this we can better take the perspective of Jesus, the long view of his ministry. He had come, yes, to preach and perform miracles. And between his preaching and his miracles, his preaching was the priority. Remember, the miracles uh, found their purpose in the certification of his preaching. <clears throat> but even his preaching was not yet the fullness of why he had come. 
He came as the divine Son of God to offer a once-for-all atoning sacrifice, taking upon himself the judgment of God due to us for our sin and delivering us from the wrath to come. And even then, the ministry of Jesus was not done, but would continue through the apostles turned uh, through the disciples turned apostles as they were sent, as they would go forth preaching the powerful word of God. Otherwise, what does it have to do with us 2,000 years later and living on the other side of the planet pretty much? Well, the ministry of Jesus has everything to do with us. And we begin to see it more clearly as Jesus appointed the twelve and named them apostles. And so the next passage, also included in the sermon text for tonight, ties in quite helpfully. Verse 22 records, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. We appointed uh, we have pointed out before the, the absurdity of the objections that the leaders of the people brought against Jesus. Last time it was the charge that Jesus was allowing his disciples to violate the Sabbath by picking grain on the Sabbath. They never would have charged a, a housewife with sin for preparing a meal for her family on the Sabbath, but, but they were looking for something, uh, anything that they could drum up to object to, even in order to destroy Jesus, as we've heard. But this time, it's the charge that Jesus was, was using the very power of Satan to cast out demons. There are responses that we hear from Jesus that are quite clever and, and wise. Here, Jesus is certainly wise, but without having to be so very clever, the answer is obvious. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. However, the cleverness of Jesus' answer might be found in this, that this is exactly why Jesus had come, to cast out Satan. And to cast him out not just from one, ten, or even a thousand people, but to cast him out of the whole world. So even as Jesus answered this ridiculous objection and charge against him, he also was able to speak of his full ministry. Simply put, Satan was not going to cast himself out Satan was not going to release his captives willingly and voluntarily leave this world. This is what Jesus had come to do, again, by his sinless life, uh, uh, by his sacrifice on the cross, by his resurrection. Jesus put it this way in verse 27, even surely with reference to his own ministry, he said, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Not only was Jesus not doing his works by the power of Satan, he had come to bind the devil and to plunder his house and to bring to freedom those 
who were bound by Satan in sin. Then comes another difficult text. We looked at one this morning. Another difficult text of God's word regarding blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as the unforgivable or unforgiven sin. But here too, I think Jesus is is giving us his perspective on the fullness of his ministry. We need to remember what, what John the Baptist said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He said, I baptize you with water, but he, that is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We learn by this teaching that Uh, this teaching from John that the coming of the Holy Spirit was what Jesus was working to bring about. All of his work, his sinless life, his suffering and death, his resurrection, were all for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Only by his saving work would the Spirit come. And only as the Spirit came would sinners be turned from their unbelief and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. So when we take the, the fuller context of God's Word, and when we consider the full ministry of Jesus, not just doing miracles for three years in a very small region of the world, there, uh, uh, and, and, and not just preaching and teaching God's Word, but going to the cross, going to the cross to die and yet to rise again, but not only to die and rise again, but to send the Spirit to apply the power of His resurrection to sinners so that they would have His new life. When we consider the full ministry of Jesus, we can see that the coming of the Holy Spirit was everything. And we can hear Jesus in this passage Jesus speaking with a degree of hyperbole. Blaspheme him and you will still be forgiven as you instead repent and believe in him. But blaspheme the Holy Spirit and you have rejected the very spirit that must change your heart that you might repent and believe in Jesus. So some would read this teaching from Jesus and and think to themselves, maybe you've done this, I I have myself. Well, what if I have blasphemed uh, against the Holy Spirit? What if I end up someday saying something against the Holy Spirit so that I can never be forgiven? And it may even become like trying not to think about a pink elephant. Have you ever uh, heard of this idea that the way to make someone think about a pink elephant is by telling them not to think about a pink elephant? Well, in the same way, being told how bad it is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we might, we might begin to think of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But that reading doesn't fit the context of Jesus' teaching here. Instead, I, I think we can hear Jesus saying that if you blaspheme him... If you reject him, even if you crucify him, you will yet be forgiven because this was even the, the saving plan of God for the, for the very sinners who rejected and crucified him. But the same plan of God for salvation is for the Spirit's coming and his power to turn your heart to Christ. And the reason I, I find a degree of hyperbole in this teaching from Jesus is because we can also hear this promise in in John 6. Uh, 
all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He didn't say, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out unless they have committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He said only this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And how interesting that Jesus uses the language there of casting out because that is exactly what Jesus came to do to Satan, to cast him out. Exactly so, sinners like you and me would be free to come to him and never to be cast out by him. In conclusion and in summary, what made Jesus successful? He came to do his Father's will, and he did his Father's will. Thousands of people flocked to him. He, he could have been rich and famous, even as he helped people. But he had far more to do than that. He had a life to live without sin. He had a cross to bear and hell to endure As Hebrews 12 says, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame that he might sit at the right hand of the Father. And even from where he is now in heaven, he still calls sinners like you and me to be his disciples. He is still sending his church into the world to preach the gospel and to sound his call, come follow me. We must hear his teaching. We must consider his claims about himself. We must see his miracles and believe in him. And we must know that his full ministry was to die for sinners and rising again to send his spirit to change our hearts and our minds and our lives forever. Amen. Please pray with me. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, for your teaching, for explaining to us what your mission was and the fullness of your ministry for sinners like us. Grant that we would hear these things, understand them, believe in you as the divine Son of God, and understand that your cross was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And as we believe not only in your death for us, may we also know that your resurrection was for us so that you would send your spirit to change our hearts. Indeed, O God, may each one here tonight have a changed heart so that instead of turning away and rejecting you, they would come to you for what only you can give and provide. O Lord, do your great work in us. Apply to us the great work of your life and death and resurrection and bring us to faith in you. In your name we pray. Amen.